Readers of the Bible who wish to delve into the niceties of rashes and boils are utterly spoiled in the book of Leviticus. Thrill-seekers, less so. After the brief flurry of activity where two of Aaron's sons are incinerated for deviating from the code set down by God, the book has found its happy place again and is detailing the correct treatment of various bodily ailments. Its dullness makes it interesting, for me at least, and I hope you glean some enjoyment and enlightenment as we drive on through these next chapters. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 29, The Rot. Welcome back if you've been following us, and welcome aboard if you're new. This is the podcast that takes you through the Bible, sticking to the story and leaving you to make up your own mind as to whether you believe it or not. Many believe every word. Others will tell you that it's all one big fable. But few go as far as reading it cover to cover to find out for themselves. It has to be a bestseller for a reason, right? Think of this as a journey of discovery, or even self-discovery, though probably not in this episode, which largely concerns itself with disease, mould and nocturnal emissions. Any Israelite who has a group of conditions loosely labelled leprosy by the Bible needs to show their rash, lump or shiny spot to a priest. If the hair on the affected area has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, the affliction is considered to be what the Bible calls a defiling skin disease. If the shiny spot on the skin is white, is only skin deep and the hair is unaffected, the person must self-isolate for a week. The priest will then examine the afflicted area and, if there's no change, another week's quarantine is prescribed. If the sore has faded, then the priest can be confident that it was just a rash and can pronounce the patient clean. To make the cleanliness official, the patient needs to wash, but if the rash then spreads, the priest must examine it to decide whether the disease is or is not defiling. The priest appears to have a role that doubles as a medic. He is to examine all his unclean patients, and if any of them have white swellings with discoloured hair and the flesh has become raw, the condition is upgraded to a chronic skin disease. There's no need to isolate the person, as they are already secluded thanks to their unclean status. Strangely, if a person is covered head to toe in a rash rather than affected in just one area, they are to be pronounced clean by the priest. This appears counterintuitive. How can a partially leprous person be seen as worse off than a fully leprous one? The answer might be that a body engulfed in a rash or white scales might be seen as a healthy body purging the sickness from within or, in other words, expelling it through the skin. On the other hand, a body with blemishes and partial rashes is seen as an internal lurgy that the body hasn't yet got a handle on. Raw flesh is always seen as unclean in Leviticus and is considered a defiling disease until it turns white, possibly through scabbing, at which point a priest will declare the afflicted person clean. If a boil, ulcer or welt appears to heal but is replaced by more swelling, redness or whitened hair and it appears to be more than skin deep, the priest must declare the patient unclean. Given that most Hebrews are dark-haired, hair that has turned white is a telltale sign that something is wrong. An absence of white hair and a fading superficial mark on the skin is seen as progress towards complete healing and the person is simply quarantined for another week when they will be checked again. If the redness is spreading, then the person remains unclean, but if the spot remains unchanged, it should be considered a scar from the boil and the patient is discharged with a clean bill of health. 
Burns, facial sores, spots and baldness all come under the priest's remit when deciding who is and is not a public health hazard and or an offence to God. According to Leviticus, burns that have become infected by red or white spots should be examined by a priest. If the hair has become discoloured too and the affliction appears to be more than superficial, the patient is viewed to have a defiling skin disease and is barred from human contact. It's the same process as with rashes and boils. If the infection doesn't spread and there are no telltale signs of disease, seven-day isolation is prescribed. If the condition is worsening, then it is upgraded from wait and see to officially defiling, and if it is healing or there is no change, the redness is simply seen as leftover swelling or scarring from the burn. Facial or head sores are also a concern to the Old Testament. Anything deemed more than skin deep and involving yellowed hair is seen to be an unclean disease. Superficial sores where the hair is still dark require seven days isolation, after which patients must check in again with the priest. If they haven't spread, the man or woman must shave their head or beard, leaving only the afflicted area before spending another seven days in isolation. If after this the rash hasn't spread further, the patient must wash their clothes, at which point they will be seen as clean. Should there be a relapse and the sore spreads, the patient reverts to their unclean status, regardless of whether the hair has changed colour or not. But if the sore is no worse than it was and black hair is now growing through it, the verdict is that the person has been healed. Dull white spots on the skin are seen as harmless, as is male hair loss. However, a sore red patch on a bald scalp or forehead requires priestly examination, especially if it is swollen and or reddish-white in colour. These symptoms are believed by Leviticus to be a telltale sign of a defiling skin disease and the man has to quarantine himself from other people in the camp. Anyone who is suffering from what is considered to be an unclean disease must warn others of their status. They should appear visually shocking by tearing their clothes and failing to brush or wash their hair. They must cover the lower part of their faces and must cry out, unclean, unclean, to make sure everyone gets out of their way. For the duration of their isolation, they must also live outside the perimeter of the camp, alone. It's unlikely that the Old Testament writers have an understanding of microbes and the spread of disease, but their isolation of affected people for purposes of ritual cleanliness and their insistence on face covering will have helped prevent the spread of infections dramatically. Isolation may seem like punishment, but the focus seems to be on preventing contamination of the tabernacle as well as having a secondary function of preventing the spread of disease within the community. It's important to note that while certain bodily functions and conditions require cleansing, the Bible doesn't consider them sinful. Cleansing is simply the act of making a person physically clean again, not forgiving them. As if things couldn't get any more obscure, it's now Mould's time to find itself in the spotlight. And not just mould singular, moulds. Fabrics do rot, although the ancient Near East might seem a little too hot and dry a place for things to get cold or damp enough for this to happen. However, washing an item then folding it away before it's properly dry can cause mould, and so if any Israelites linen, cotton, wool or leather develops a green or reddish rot, they are to alert the priest. He should make sure that the item is confiscated and ring-fenced for a week, after which time he should examine it carefully to see whether the problem has spread. If it has, the damage is classed as a persistent defiling mould, and the item must be burned. It has been spoiled by the rot and can't risk contaminating the camp. 
If the mould has not spread, the offending article should be washed and segregated for another seven days. If the contaminated patch is no better than before, the item should be burned as it is still considered unclean. But if the rot has receded or faded, it can be cut out so the fabric or garment is still usable. If the problem reappears, it's clearly something that spreads, and as spreading things are seen as dangerous and uncontrollable, it should be burned. Any item that has had its mould disappear or lessen by washing should be washed one more time, at which point it will be considered clean. It might be hard to see inanimate objects as contaminated, but this kind of human aversion to things which seem dangerously infectious still exists in popular culture. Look no further than the Disney Pixar movie Monsters, Inc., where a child's sock causes panic and lockdown. Unclean people must pitch their tents outside the Israelite camp, and there must be a regular flow of people who have touched dead loved ones or whose illness places them temporarily in the unclean camp. Though the Israelites have taboos and these people are considered unclean, there appears to be no sense of shame. Occasional periods of uncleanness are part of everyday life. The act of cleansing a person who has had a skin disease is an elaborate one and involves dead birds, scarlet thread and shaving. When they are ready for their checkup after their week of isolation, the priest comes out of the camp to assess their condition. If the person is considered clean, two birds are brought along with some cedar wood, scarlet thread and hyssop, a shrubby plant known for its medicinal qualities. As if casting a spell, the priest kills one of the birds over a clay pot containing fresh water. The hyssop and cedar are tied to the live bird using the red thread and the whole shebang dipped into the blood and water mix. This crude brush is used to sprinkle the person who, until now, has been excluded from the camp and after this ritual has been completed seven times, they are pronounced clean and the live bird released into the wild. The ceremony, however, is far from over. The person must now wash their clothes, shave all their bodily hair and bathe themselves. Only then will they be considered clean enough to re-enter the camp. This done, they must stay outside their tent for seven more days. After this semi-isolation, they must shave, wash their clothes and bathe again and they will be considered clean. They may no longer be an outcast, but there is plenty more to do before they can be fully repatriated. On the eighth day, the cleansed party must bring two unblemished male lambs and one female lamb, as well as 11 pounds of finest flour mixed with olive oil, along with 10 fluid ounces of pure oil. The priest is to take the person and their sacrificial gifts to the entrance to the tabernacle. Here, he must take one of the lambs, which he offers as a guilt offering. All physical sickness in Old Testament times is seen as punishment for wrongdoing. The olive oil is waved towards the holiest part of the tabernacle where God is believed to live, after which the priest kills the lamb. Along with the animal destined to be sacrificed as a sin offering, this lamb is seen as food for the priests. But before Israel's holy men can enjoy their meal, they must take the gilt lamb and dab its blood on the right earlobe, right thumb and right big toe of the person being cleansed. The priest must then pour some of the oil into his left hand, then sprinkle it with his finger seven times towards God, before dabbing it on the person's earlobe, thumb and big toe. The rest of the oil is poured onto the person's head, and they can now be considered guilt-free. The second lamb should be slaughtered as a sin offering, and, to close the deal on the cleansing, the priest then takes the third lamb and sacrifices it on the altar as a burnt offering, along with the flour. Again, Leviticus believes that no one should be barred from being cleansed for financial reasons, and if three lambs are unaffordable, one lamb, a couple of birds and some oil are also acceptable. 
the lamb should be waved at God, along with three and a half pounds of flour mixed with oil. The same process is followed, with the lamb ending up as the guilt offering, while the two birds constitute the sin offering and burnt offering. Only the anointing of priests in the Bible seems as involved, and like the priests, the ceremony appears to be taking someone whose human failings make them ungodly and corrupt, and bringing them back to a state of holiness. The emphasis is on animals taking on the sin of people, and while this may be a typical religious rite in the Near East at the time, the subsequent substitution of a man, i.e. Jesus, for a lamb or pigeon is unheard of and sends shockwaves around the world. This is exacerbated when Christians throw in the bombshell claim that it is God's own son who has been sacrificed rather than a random animal picked up for a few shekels at a stall near the temple. Back to mould. If any of it is found in a house, a priest needs to be called as there are very strict protocols that need to be put in place. As the Israelites still live in tents in the desert, information about ridding buildings of mould seems somewhat premature, but forewarned appears to be forearmed in this instance. However, the people are en route to Canaan, which has plenty of houses, and according to Leviticus, God may infect some of them with mould. Why he would choose to do this, readers are not told, but the underlying sentiment is that people are ultimately imperfect and fallible, and that diseases, moulds, rots and other biological attacks come as a result of this. One theory is that the previous tenants of Canaanite houses may have carried out pagan rites within their walls, and that God is using the cleansing ceremony to purify them. Should a house be blighted by mould, the priest must be alerted, and a bit like modern-day fumigations, the building must be gutted of all its contents. This is to prevent any household items from becoming needlessly contaminated by having contact with the mould. Once the place is empty, the priest can make his inspection, and if he sees green or red depressions in the plaster work, the main entrance must be boarded up for seven days. If after this the mould has spread, any contaminated stones must be removed and the entire plasterwork from the interior of the house scraped off. The rubble must be taken to a designated unclean place outside of the town and dumped, while replacement stones must be found to fill the gaps and a new layer of clay applied to the interior. If this fixes it, the house is clean, but if the canker grows back, the whole house must be torn down. Readers are told that it is suffering a persistent defiling mould, and that the timbers and stones must be dumped out of town where they can no longer harm other buildings. Anyone who enters the house during this time, such as builders or the home's owners, will remain unclean until evening, and anyone who eats or sleeps inside must wash their clothes after they have left. If the mould is cleared up within the week of lockdown, the building is seen as clean. However, a similar ritual to when people with skin diseases are declared clean must still be performed to make the cleansing official. The same combination of bird's blood, water, hyssop and cedar is sprinkled at the house by the priest before the live bird that forms part of the sprinkling bundle is released. The house is now considered to have had its sin taken away and the evicted tenants can move back in. Leviticus now turns a little Viticus, as it launches into some rules about sperm, blood and other bodily fluids. Any man with what the Bible calls an unusual bodily discharge is seen as automatically unclean, regardless of whether the discharge is blocked or keeps flowing. Without specifying what these discharges might be or where they come from, all readers are told is that anything the man wears, touches, sleeps or sits on is unclean. Anyone who touches the man, his bed or sits where he has been sitting must wash themselves and their clothes. 
even then they will still be unclean until evening. If the man with a discharge spits on anyone, or if he touches them without washing his hands first, they remain unclean until evening and should wash their clothes and bathe thoroughly. Clay pots which the man has touched while discharging must be smashed, while wooden ones need to be rinsed. Once the problem stops, the man must wait seven days, wash his clothes, bathe in clean water, and bring two doves or young pigeons to the tabernacle to hand to a priest. One of these is for a general burnt offering, to demonstrate to God that he is worthy of worship, while the other is for a sin offering. The dead bird is seen to take away the man's wrongdoing and leave him blameless and spiritually spotless before God. A man who suffers from an emission of semen must wash himself and any affected clothing and remains unclean until the following evening. Any act of lovemaking that results in stray semen landing on the woman means that the couple must wash and consider themselves unclean until nightfall. Women on their periods are unclean for a week but appear to be able to go about their business as long as no one touches them, their clothing or anything they have sat or slept on. Anyone who accidentally comes into contact with something worn, sat or slept on by a menstruating woman or who makes physical contact with her must wash their clothes and themselves and will remain unclean until evening. If a man has sex with a woman who is on her period, he is unclean for a full seven days and any bed which he lies on will be considered contaminated. If a woman doesn't stop bleeding after a week, as in the case of the New Testament sufferer who touches Jesus' cloak while he's surrounded by a large crowd, she remains unclean until the bleeding eventually stops. This life-limiting condition means that neither she nor any bed or seat she sleeps or sits on can be touched by anyone else. If they do touch these by accident or design, they must wash themselves and their clothes and are forbidden to interact with the rest of the camp until nightfall. The cleansing process is then the same as for the man with a bodily discharge. On the eighth day after the problem stops, two birds are to be taken to the priests for a sacrifice and life can continue as usual. God stipulates that these rules are so that the people keep themselves holy for him. And this means separating themselves from things which are seen as unclean. He tells Moses that his hope is for no one to die in the camp in an unclean state, as this is his home too. And though it never makes it as a quote in the Bible, the sense is that in these early days in the desert, cleanliness is most certainly next to godliness. It should be noted that the Bible isn't against bodily discharges, but in the same way that people today rarely go to the loo without washing their hands and might balk at eating in the same room as a lavatory, the ancients need codes put in place to ensure that acceptable standards of cleanliness are upheld in the camp. It's been an eye-opening journey. And though the Bible is the world's best-selling book, these are some of its least read pages. Few people spend as long on them as you have just done, so congratulations. If nothing else, you have something to talk about at your next social get-together. From now on, Leviticus enters what can loosely be described as its controversial phase. These are the chapters that have many liberal-minded people shaking their heads and dismissing the Bible as outdated, prejudiced and, yes, dangerous. All that is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please do follow us on Twitter and Facebook, or send any feedback to contact at holybible.com. 
And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. 